Well, good morning. I have to tell you before we go to the word that I am just thoroughly, thoroughly filled of heart this morning. My uh, rather Matt asked me what he could pray for, and I said, my heart's just full. Uh, I'm having a great week. Um, there's a spirit of joy, and the fellowship is just sweet this week. Uh, it always is, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm experiencing something a little bit special. And uh, I have to say also that this is a wonderful, challenging time for me because I do a lot of traveling to our churches, and but actually not as often as I'd like. So I see some of you like every two or three years, and I know your face. I might remember our conversations, but I probably won't remember your name. So I've even called a few people by the wrong names in here, and then I beat myself up, and then I just tell the Lord he can, you know, give it over to him. But if I don't remember your name, please forgive me, and I'll try. And also, please initiate, you know, seeking me out, because I love to reconnect with people that I don't get to see often, whether we've, you know, whether it's been brief or or the Lord's given us deeper times together. So good to be with you all. So let's, let's pause for a moment for prayer. We thank you, our Lord Jesus, our Father, Holy Spirit. We're before you this morning at your feet. It is because of your stripes, Lord Jesus, that we're healed, that we have life, that we're forgiven of sin, and that we can gather and worship and, and live in joy before you. So um, teach us through your word. Um, Use what you will this morning, Lord, and be pleased in our gathering, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I was asked, actually Brother Keith and I were both asked um, to talk about the word blessed as we read specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed in the Beatitudes, blessed are the, and so forth. We wanted to, you know, that's a word that's, it's thrown around a lot in our um, culture. You see blessed on shirts, you see it on bumper stickers and Pinterest and whatever. Um, but we wanted to kind of dig in a little bit and say and look at what does this word mean. And now I'm not going to go into the original languages and, and go about it that way. But um, I'm probably just going to scratch the surface uh, as far as some of the things that I've found about the meaning of the blessed, the blessedness of the people of God. Our primary text is Matthew 5, 6. Would you please stand for a moment as I read that short verse? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Thank you. You may be seated. So we want to gain a little bit more understanding uh, this morning about blessed, what it means, and we want to understand what Jesus is saying in the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount through this in this verse and how it fits. In preparing for this, I read, I think, every instant in the Old and New Testaments of this word, and there are hundreds. There are different forms. Um, I was specifically looking at the adjectival form of blessed as we read in this verse in Matthew. Uh, It's an adjective describing um, a group of people, the people of God. And... uh, I found it, the meaning boiled down is, to me, it's, it's a description of the nature of the life of the child of God. The nature, blessed is a description of the nature of life of the child of God. 
And I did some more study and reading, and here's what I found, this profound conclusion I came to, that the, the, the words translated as we read blessed basically mean happy. Now, I don't, did you ever see a book? There was a book by our Presbyterian brother, um, um, now I'm blanking on his name, out of uh, uh, Orange County, California, who wrote the book, The Be Happy Attitudes, and um, Schuler, Robert Schuler, uh, and, and I saw that book, book, title of that book one time, and it just kind of seemed a little hokey to me, and I thought, the Be Happy Attitudes, but you know what? Blessedness is really about happiness. It really is. I grew up in evangelicalism, and I remember being told somewhere on the lo- along the line, I really downloaded this idea that Christians should not seek to be happy. We should seek joyfulness. Um, the idea I got was that happiness, at least as the world experiences it, can be shallow, unstable, and fleeting. It's just a temporary experiential thing. Joyfulness, rather, is a state of heart and mind that is a choice and can transcend any circumstance. And that's good, and that's true. Um, but to be blessed, in, as Jesus is using this word in the Sermon on the Mount here, I think really means to be happy. It's just it's a certain type of happiness. So maybe we need a better term in English for a higher level of happy. I thought of uh, perhaps existentially ecstatic. <laughs> existentially ecstatic are those that hunger and thirst. Um, blessed means, but that's two words, right? Blessed means happiness that is supreme. As Keith said yesterday, it's the favor of God poured out on a person, enveloping them, altering everything about their existence. It's a perfect, secure, perfectly secure eternity with God and the people of God. Being blessed, blessed means to have nothing to fear. It means that we are now under no condemnation if we are in Christ. Blessedness is having the face of God turned upon you. It's his countenance shining on you. It is God perfectly loving you and enjoying you, enjoying you as his redeemed child. It is an unthinkably beautiful future, grace-filled present, and a redeemed past. At the heart, I found, and I believe, at the meaning, the heart of the meaning of the word blessed is relationship. It's all about, it's all wrapped up in uh, blessedness is relationship. I remember the day, I remember very well the day I was married. I had this realization that I would never have to be apart from Colleen again in this life. It was one of the happiest moments of my life, I think. I had this realization that we don't have to say goodbye. Uh, now, there have been goodbyes, but you know the kind of goodbye. Like, especially for an engaged couple, it's just this tearing apart. And when, when I had this realization that she's going to be by my side forever in this life now. Um, this is similar, I think, to the kind of happiness that David is experiencing and, and describing in Psalm 139. And I wish I could read a bigger section of this psalm, but um, in verse 16, he says, I awake, and I'm still with you. Do you ever have that? You had a bad dream or something, and you wake up, and, um, and you're like, oh, 
It's not, it didn't, you know, if it's bad, it really didn't. It's not real, praise the Lord, it didn't happen. Um, in this case, David wakes up, and it's like the reality, it's the positive um, dimension of that, that God is with him, God is there. He's there, as he describes in the psalm, no matter where he goes or what he does or what he could think, God is there. He's always there relationally. It's, it's, a, it's a constant, and... Um, and that's a beautiful thing. The satisfaction promised to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness is relational satisfaction. It is to be right up close in God's presence with nothing to keep you from him or him from you. But there's a kind of irony in, in the Beatitudes, a juxtaposition in, in, in this verse, verse in Matthew 6 and the other verses around it, it is as if Jesus is saying, happy are you if you are deeply uncomfortable, for you will become happy. You will be satisfied. For the blessed, that is, the the people of God, the blessed who are one unto salvation through Jesus Christ and faith in him, there's a kind of terribly uncomfortable yearning and a need to be like Jesus, to be pure, a desire to be pure like him pure in our life, in our actions. So we are blessed and we are satisfied, but we hunger and thirst for God to a degree that is really suffering at times. Have you felt that yearning for God, for Christ, especially when you're wrestling with sin that is a kind of suffering? We are a people starving for him, dry in our mouth, satisfied yet feeling that we're unable to get enough, wanting more of him in this life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, mentor of mine, dead mentor, um, he's with the Lord, of course, Um, he calls this the normative Christian life. He says that the Christian who is healthy in heart will cycle back and forth between experiencing the truths that we read of in Romans 7 and 8. Romans 7 is that wrestling with the, the, the residue, the remaining sin. And Romans 8 is the completion, the celebration of that, that comprehension of the completed work of Christ that we are in. We experience the unspeakable relief of being joined with Christ Jesus, forgiven, complete, clean. But we experience a remaining degree of sin in our lives and we struggle, we sin, we become frustrated, we, we experience sorrow for our sin. As we grow deeper in faith and in the knowledge of the security of our lives in Christ, we come, I think we become more and more deeply grieved by our sin. We simply want to be near Jesus and to be like him without these hideous falls into sin. We grow to hate our sin and to long to be permanently free of it. The cycle of godly fellowship, sin, confession, forgiveness, restored fellowship, joy, sin, confession, forgiveness, etc., can create in, in us a kind of godly desperation to be filled with him and changed to be sanctified further and further. It's a good thing to hunger and thirst for righteousness. God says he will satisfy us. And he does satisfy our longing. He writes his law on our hearts, he says. As we seek him, our hearts become more like his. 
We find ourselves living the good law of God a little more and a little more. The Sermon on the Mount actually becomes these things that you can see. I think this is a wrong um, perspective to take. Some people believe that it's just this perfect standard that's articulated to show us that we can never meet it. And I think that's a, that's a terrible way to look at this wonderful passage as we you know when I was I sometimes talk about when I was a young man my sins were so much more simple <laughs> you know I, I confess my you know using cuss words or whatever and, and, and there were things that I did that I struggled with it now seems so elementary but they were big struggles at the time and um, and now uh, you know I, I grieve over a lot of sins of um, omission, and and then just the fact is, as uh, a man said yesterday, that you know I sin every moment and and every day certainly in not loving God uh, and loving other things more. So, um, but the but the, the 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 hopeful thing and the positive thing is that He is as we seek Him, He say He does sanctify us. I hope you can all look at your life and and identify things that you used to struggle with that you now have victory over, that God gave you victory over. But now, you know, you're struggling with different things, but we're, we're gaining higher ground if we're seeking him. We're becoming more conformed to his image. To get a fuller sense of the concept of the blessed person, let's go over to Psalm 1. I will read through it. And pay attention to what, you're, what you hear it saying about the one who is blessed. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's so much to see here. We could just take the first two verses and, and, and spend a lot of time on that. But the blessed person walks in the counsel and delight of God. To be blessed Blessed involves a state of being, habits, choices, delights of the heart, and really good effects, including ultimate prosperity and eternal life. And we also see the opposite. The unblessed person is rootless, unstable, insecure, and unfruitful. They do not prosper. They wither. They will not be able to stand on the judgment day. They will have no hope, no savior, they do not know Jesus Christ and will have no invitation to the gathering of God's people for eternity and the great banquet there. They will be lost. They will perish forever. As I considered the word blessed in the Old and New Testaments, here's another thing I found. There, to be blessed indicates two fundamental things about a person's life. First, to be blessed is to have secure standing with God. So first is standing, a secure standing before God. To have standing with God is to be in a position 
of secure, redeemed, loving, and favored relationship with him. It's to be known by God, chosen by God, saved by God. Like the psalm says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That way is the way to salvation and life. A person has this standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, as we know. Secondly, to be blessed is to be in a seeking relationship to God. Those who belong to God through faith in Christ have this in common. They seek him. They want to be near him. There just isn't really a biblical category for the person who's a Christian but just doesn't care, who just never seeks the Lord, doesn't feel that sensitivity and that being drawn toward him. The believer wants to be near him. They want to be like Jesus. They want to obey Jesus. They have the hunger and thirst of heart that we've just read about. One way of understanding blessed is to look at its opposite. We, we could find a lot of stories to illustrate this. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They've just sinned by eating the fruit that God, the one thing God said for them not to eat. What did they do? They hide from God behind some trees. They're afraid. They're aware they are naked. They are now avoiding God out of shame and fear. They're in conflict with one another, as we can tell by Adam's words shortly following. Adam and Eve's situation is the opposite of being blessed. Instead, their state is cursed, cut off from relationship with God. Ever since our parents, Adam and Eve, Sin. Humans have experienced the kind of tearing apart of the heart and soul. We want to be independent. The fallen state is a, is, a, is a desire for independence, for control, for autonomy. In a fallen state of heart, people do not want to be dependent on, upon God. They, do, they want to be free of him. They do not seek him and cannot seek him. They cannot get away, nevertheless, from their absolute need for God, for we cannot exist, really exist as humans, without connection to God. Well, praise him. Praise the Lord. He has given us a way of salvation, a way out of that hiding and that sin and that shame and that death. If you belong to Christ through faith, you've come out of the bushes. He's given you his clothing of righteousness. Your shame is gone. Your torn and dead heart is alive and forgiven and restored. You have the life of Jesus Christ in you. Let's go to the narrative of the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. I want you to just kind of picture, I don't know if you've ever tried to imagine that, and some of you have probably even walked in Israel and maybe even been on that mountain. I have not had that pleasure, but imagine for a moment the scene. And they go up on a mountain... I used to think of this as almost as if there was a podium up there and, and the crowds, you know, covered the mountainside. And then I realized that this was just, Jesus went up and his disciples came and it was, it was just it was an intimate gathering of his disciples. He's sitting in a wild place, maybe he's perched on a rock and he's talking to them. I imagine him caring for these men, loving them, and he's describing how children of God live. He's not telling the disciples they must live this way, keep these rules, or they won't be saved. He's not giving them obligations. The Sermon on the Mount is a conversation in which Jesus 
tells them and us what loving the love of God and others looks like. As Keith said yesterday, Jesus is, is describing who his followers are, the kind of hearts they have. He's telling his disciples how believers will desire to live, how his life in them will play out in his followers' lives. Saved from our sins and restored to relationship with God, we are filled with gratitude to, to him and love for him and growing love for others out of gratitude for what God has done much when we are forgiven much, we love much, and we in turn want to love others much. So I think that's what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. So when Jesus says, you know, do not look at a woman to lust, some people would say, well, I don't commit adultery. But do you, do you look at other, do you look at women um, as objects? Do you love See, there's, there's not doing the extreme thing, not committing adultery. And then there's way on the other end of the spectrum is actually loving other people and making them better. Why would we not, why would we not look at pornography, for example? Well, because it is destroying lives, and you're participating in the destruction of lives, which is the opposite of love. When we seek the Lord and are conformed to him, we want to love even strangers. We want to love everyone. We don't want to... We would never want to participate in the destruction, the harm of another person that's made in God's image. Jesus tells us what love looks like. Love moves beyond, another example, not just killing. It moves beyond not killing people, right? So you can keep the the commandment and not actually kill someone, and that's good. But it's what the law of God, the heart of God is about is is not harming, it's doing good. That's the other end of the spectrum. As Jesus talks to his disciples, he gives them a tool, a way of praying. It's a model of how they can talk to the Father. The Lord's Prayer is a simple structure that touches upon the core issues of life. And I I believe this is strategic because Jesus is talking through the way of life of a person of God, a follower, a, a person who loves the good law of God, who loves God, who, who is defined by the two great commandments. He's saying, I don't think this is just random. Oh, by the way, you could pray like this. This is a way of entering into the heart of God and um, in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is giving his disciples in his prayer and us a way that expresses a hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness. I believe it's the prayer of the blessed. I hope you use this. I hope you pray the Lord's Prayer often. For me, it is a daily lifeline with God. It's the frame within which I talk to God about everything under the sun. I use this every day as a, just a, a way of structuring my conversation with the Lord. And it's, when I began that many years ago, it was a little more... Um, Conscious and it felt more structured. Now it doesn't feel structured at all. It's just, it's habit. It's, there are categories and ways. It's like a, a pathways that I use to talk to the Lord, and I highly recommend it. Let's walk briefly through the petitions of this prayer and just see how it reinforces the two things I talked about standing and seeking. 
pay attention to what you hear in the prayer saying about your position with God and your response to him. There are countless, countless ways, things you can draw out of these themes in the Lord's Prayer, but I'm just going to touch on a few examples. In each, of the, in each petition, um, I like to connect mentally to other verses in the, in the Word that, that are speaking to the same issue. So the first petition, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does this say about our standing? It's pretty obvious, right? First of all, there's that pronoun, our. We stand in relationship with God with others fundamentally. Um, but he's our father. You know, we're the only religion. We are the, you know, we know God as our loving father, and we are unique in all the earth in terms of other belief systems in that. God is our father. It's a powerful and astonishing truth. In Christ, we are claimed by him, adopted, known, eternally loved. We can call him Abba, Daddy. This is not true of the unbeliever. He is alienated from the Father. We must not take this for granted. You ever been tempted to, or temptation maybe is a strong word, but to call someone brother? But they're not a brother. They're not a sister unless they are in the family of God, really. It's an an immense privilege to to belong to our Father. One of the aspects of belonging, having a father God, is the privilege of worshiping him. You ever think about that, that worship is a privilege? Unbelievers, they don't understand, they wouldn't comprehend, so they probably, they don't, they're not interested in worshiping God. But for us, this is, this is the most precious privilege in life to be able to worship and love our Savior God. Hallowed be thy name is seeking language. The child of God wants God to be honored and worshipped in the world. There's so many ways I could talk about doing this. But one, I have this little prayer habit that um, I think it began one, one time I was in Turkey and I was ministering over there for a time. And I remember being on this bus and we were in this remote in um, Cappadocia, which is an incredible part of Turkey. And, um, and we're going down this highway, and there was poppy fields, and, and these Turks working in the poppy fields. And I was over there, and I couldn't, I had no, no knowledge of Turkish, and so I was, I was working with missionaries over there, but I couldn't speak to the people, and I felt powerless to bring the gospel. And I remember looking out the window of this bus, and I said, Lord Jesus, I worship you on this bus seat on this little highway in Turkey. And that's all I could do. And that's become a way of life for me. Like I worship on I-70 at, you know, hopefully not at 80 miles an hour. But um, I just like to proclaim, Lord, this piece of ground, this trail, this, this road, this room I'm in, I give you praise, Lord Jesus, in this place. And that I see as my fundamental purpose is to simply worship him hour by hour. Sometimes I even put a, an, a, a pin on my app on my phone, and I've got these little pins all over where I've proclaimed Jesus as Lord. Um, As the blessed of God, we hunger for his honor in the world. Hallowing his name with our hearts and our minds and our mouths is a way of bringing, participating in the bringing of the kingdom into the world. The second petition is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, is, what does this say about standing? 
While we are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, for sure, all the benefits and inheritance and of princes and princesses are ours. And as Steve told us, we can also be happy peasants of God. Think about Psalm 2. Are you familiar with Psalm 2? The Lord is seated. The Son is seated on the throne. I love Psalm. Psalm 2 was my pandemic psalm. I memorized them. Like, the Lord is on the throne. And it just made me happy. Um, In praying, thy kingdom come, I remember that Christ is exalted as king. I remember that he has conquered the grave and all principalities. I remember that I belong to him. That's my position. That's my standing. I belong to him. Praying thy kingdom come also moves me to consider what I am doing to seek kingdom purpose and live it out. How am I living on this one day, this particular day of my life? Do you know that you have a certain number of days? It's probably some like 20-some thousand. I added mine up one time, and I'm at like 17,000 or something I've lived. There's a distinct number. How are you living this particular day of your limited life on earth for the kingdom and, and, and Jesus has said the kingdom of God is in your heart. What is, what's going on in your heart today? Are you seeking? Are you responding to the Lord? Are you soft toward him? Are you listening and heeding the Holy Spirit? That's kingdom stuff. Third petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, standing. Where God is our father, we have, um, he, he promises Things. He's a good father. He doesn't give us stones to eat. He gives us fish or bread. He gives us good things, good gifts. He takes care of us. We belong to him. He is perfectly trustworthy. We have nothing to fear. He is the God who gave his people manna in the wilderness. He is the father who has given his only son for our salvation. His care for us as his children, his redeemed, is perfect. The daily bread petition is precious to me and that it also takes me into the heart of the gospel, the bread of life of Jesus. Um, I had, I was going to talk about something else related to that. I'm, for sake of time, I'll go past it. But I have seen, um, I, well, I'll just put this simple question before us. Do you still marvel at the gospel? Or is it the fact that God in time past, eternity past, decided to save us by giving of his very self in an earthly death, suffering, and all that is in the gospel. Do you marvel at it? He is the bread of life. This, this, we need to keep that bread fresh, so to speak, to ponder that. Um, this prayer also, so I, when I think of daily bread, I think of two things. There's a bread, daily bread, I've kind of been talking about spiritual bread. Jesus as, as my bread of life, and, and that involves, am I going to the word? Am I getting fed in the word? There's also just food, right? Physical preservation. The money to pay the electric bill. That's part of that daily bread as well. Um, and as missionaries, um, we have learned to pray Colleen and I and our kids, very hard for our needs. Being in, a, in difficult circumstances has taught me to hunger for God. In everywhere we, we have lived, I've gone and I've found some remote place to pray. And uh, I love to find a secluded place. where, I, And if possible, that's far enough away that I can actually 
audibly pray out loud and cry out to God. There's a time to cry out audibly, to shout. Um, on the islands in the Atlantic where we lived for 10 years, there was this canyon. You'd follow the beach, and there was this canyon. And I'd go up. There's just a little ravine. I'd go up there, and in the, the canyon, I could look out and see the ocean. And behind me was these cliffs. And I could just pray as loud and long as I wanted, and I was, no one was around. Um, and there were days that I cried out to God there for money for groceries, for money to arrive in the mail. This was, at the time, there was no PayPal and Venmo and direct deposits. We, it was, we, we waited on checks to come to support our work. And I remember just, just learning to dependence upon the Lord by crying out to him for the things we needed. It was actually one of the most blessed things in my life. Uh, I also prayed for wisdom I needed to be able to understand, to gain the language, the French language, to understand the needs there, to find my, my, my place of ministry there. I cried out to God for his righteousness. I tried to trust him. and as I was trying to trust him and lead my family in this completely unknown culture. I prayed with longing and hunger for the bread of life of Christ, for my needy soul. My faith was forever changed by that practical dependence of praying for daily bread. Fourth petition. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So standing, what's the most obvious thing that you think of in terms of standing? Anybody? Forgive us our debts. Well, we're forgiven, right? We are, for, our debts, our, our big, our sin state is forgiven. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now, we do go and confess sins on a daily, in a daily way to the Lord, but we have the standing to even do that because we are redeemed. It has been said that the most precious thing in a Christian's life is to be forgiven of sin. Psalm 32, 1 through 2 reads, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts, no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Jesus, in teaching his followers to pray in this way, reminds us that our salvation, I'm sorry, our Savior God is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is the seeking related to this? Well, I believe the normative desire of the Christian is to be clean of heart and clean in relationships. So as we seek our Father's forgiveness of sin, hearts full of gratitude to God, we desire to forgive others in turn. That's the opposite of that. Remember that parable of the man who was forgiven and then he wouldn't forgive the debts of somebody who owed him. That's the opposite of the heart of a child of God. I found over many years of following Jesus that my sensitivity to this has grown. I've, I really experience a hunger and thirst for righteousness of God in my relationships. This moves me to frequently search my heart in prayer, asking God to reveal anything I have not resolved with another person. So I, I suggest that as you pray. I always keep these two together. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I, I try to never separate that. It's always like I'm forgiven. 
Lord, what do I need to forgive? Is there any, anything I'm holding? Is there an offense? Anything that I need to let go of and forgive? Any contact I need to make? Number five, petition five, lead us not into temptation. This petition reminds me that Jesus Christ is my shepherd. That's my standing. He is our shepherd. We're not sheep that are scattered without a shepherd. We have the great shepherd. He leads us in paths of righteousness. He is constantly watching out for our good in every way. Our lives are secure in him. I once was in the mountains, and there was a, a look uh, like a viewing area. And there was this, it, there, was a, a, there was a stone kind of wall and a, a rail, and there was a cliff. And there was this family there, and there was a little boy who was maybe four years old. And he was crying, he was wailing, kind of panicky, you know, it's sort of almost a tantrum cry, and he was clinging to his father's leg. And he was saying, don't let me go there, don't let me go, don't let me go. He was telling the father to not let him go to the edge because he was afraid. He, what was he afraid? He was afraid of himself. He was afraid of getting over to the edge and falling down. And he was asking his father to not let him. That's the spirit of this petition to me. It's not, we don't pray this because, as if to say, God, please don't do anything bad to me. It's no, it's really a way of saying, take my hand, Lord. Take my hand. I want to follow. I want to be connected with you. Don't, I know I am prone to wander. I know I will walk off cliffs on my own. Please don't let me. That's what that little boy was. He was preaching a sermon. Didn't know it. Our folly would kill us if not for the protection of our loving God. Our sin would kill us. A practical example of, you know, how, how do I respond to this? Again, I'm just giving you some little bits and pieces. I actually will be praying. I love to walk and pray. And I'll lift, I don't care if I, people sing me and think I'm weird. I will, I'll be like this walking down the road and... Um, and I'm reaching, I'm saying, Lord, take my hand. This sim- symbolism of this is powerful to me. Take my hand because I'm prone to wander. I don't want to wander. I want, your, I want to hold your hand. Sixth petition and final. But deliver us from the evil one. I thank you, Peter. Peter's in the room somewhere. Ever since Peter preached last year, and you said, if your Bible says, deliver us from evil, get a new Bible, or you know, maybe write that in there or something, but the correct translation is the evil one, because Satan is personal, and he is prowling, he's a prowling lion, and he is, it is not this abstract force out there, it is a, he's an entity, a personality who is seeking our destruction. But we are safe and secure from him, are we not? We are safe and secure. Jesus has conquered sin and death. He is the king triumphant. Satan has no ultimate power over us. And yet, we are told in this petition to ask God to deliver us. I see this as, this as an active request of God. Are we actively seeking the protection of God against the evil designs of Satan? 
See, the fact that Satan has been defeated does not mean that he does not have the ability to attack us and harm us in the present right now in this earth. He just can't do us ultimate harm. A few years ago, I became aware of a pattern in my life. I, I would, at certain times, have these waves of discouragement roll over me. And it was almost, it, there was a temptation to, to, part of it was a temptation to just go with it and, and to just to, to go deep and into discouragement. And one day I was walking in the woods and I was praying, deliver us from the evil one. And I was pondering this. I was thinking about this pattern. And I asked God for the wisdom to understand how to be free from this. And the Spirit guided my thinking to an event when I was a youth in which I had willingly gone into self-pity in a very big way. And I just kind of wallowed in it. And I'd never resolved that. It was just, you know, there's, there's forgiveness in general in our lives. And then there's it's not like God holds things out, but I believe he wants us to go back and resolve things. That's part of being a mature Christian is we seek to be clean, even in things that we may have done in our past that were wrong. So I got on my knees and I prayed and I, I confessed the sin that I committed at that time at like 14 years old. And I gave it to the Lord and I sought freedom and I claimed freedom in Jesus Christ from that. And I knew as I prayed that something was changing, something was being healed. And since that day, I've never once experienced that. It's been years now, complete freedom, complete freedom. And that, to me, is an example of asking the Lord to deliver me from the evil one. Satan desires to drive us into the brush, naked, ashamed, alienated from God, just like he did with Adam and Eve. Don't let him do it. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is also to resist evil. The blessed of God know God as Father. We know his love. We seek him. When I was a youth, I attended a church in which there was a large stained glass window at the front of the sanctuary, and it depicted the risen and ascending Christ under his depicted feet was a little scroll which said, come unto me. I used to sit in that church on Sundays, and I would avoid looking at that window because I was ashamed. I had unrepentant sin in my life. Week after week, the Spirit would work at me, and I would, I would just not want to look at that image. It was a beautiful image. I had this I was like Adam, hiding in the trees, afraid to come out and face my father. Satan kept me in this bondage for a long time. I knew I belonged to God. I had a strong sense of God as my father already as a, as a youth. I knew Jesus was my savior, but I had this tension inside. I had no sense of the blessing of God in my life. I had no satisfaction. I had a, I had a kind of hunger and thirst, though. I wanted to be near God, to have a clean conscience, but I was ashamed. And I was not sure I totally wanted to give up my sin. You know how that is? Like, if I really let go of all the control in my life, like, what will happen? But the Holy Spirit kept using those words, come unto me, come unto me, come unto me, and calling me. I remember one Sunday morning, I just let go. I just let go of my sufficiency, my self-sufficiency, my pride, my sin. 
I trusted Jesus to take me in and forgive me. And he did. He did completely. He gave me incredible rest in that moment. He set my feet on rock. He forgave me and loved me. My hunger and thirst was not just to live better. Here's what I understood over time. I, didn't, I wasn't just hungry and thirsting to, to live better, to be a better person, to be a, a real Christian. That's what I thought I needed to do. I thought if I came and submitted to Christ, I, I, would, I would have to be a certain way. I would have to meet certain standards. My hunger and thirst was for Jesus himself. And here's what I learned when I began to trust and follow Jesus as a young man. I found the good life, the full life, the happiest life, the most satisfying life, the blessed life, was in seeking Jesus and obeying him in every way. That's like how to be happy is to seek Jesus and obey him, to trust and obey. As John Piper has said so well, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our life. He is our righteousness. In him we are satisfied. He leads us by as he perfectly keeps the good law of God, showing us the way. Brothers and sisters, consider your standing this morning. Marvel at where God has placed you through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's let's seek him fully in our hearts and minds and bodies today. And if you do not yet know him, and I don't want to make the assumption that everyone in this room knows him, he is saying to you in this very moment, come unto me. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we pray with the saints of of the earth today and of the past, we praise you. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done, Lord. May you be glorified, much glorified in the earth today as your people praise you and worship you. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us more what it means to be blessed. I pray that we would hunger and thirst, that you would make us uncomfortable, that we would be thirsty for you hungry for you and that you would then satisfy us with nearness to you with, and with sanctification, Lord, and uh, every good gift that is yours. And we pray these things in your holy name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.